This is a Broad Pods production. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. People say life is a journey, not a destination. But how do you know you're on the right path? If only we could see the signs when they appear. Well, I'm Amy Kwa. And I'm Jo Stanley. And on A to B, we speak to fascinating people about how they navigated their way to be here now, having profound impact on the world. We hope our conversations will help you reflect on everything you've been through to get here. The triumphs, challenges and bumps along the road. And if you haven't already, find your own map to what matters. You know, my boss at Netflix is married to Gwyneth Paltrow. Now we had Yamcha with Gwyneth Paltrow in him. Like, it's so wild. And to see, like, the wealth and the glamour and going to these Oscar parties to see all these worlds from China to Australia to L.A., it's really bizarre. Today's conversation is with incredible film writer Amy Wang. Now, she used to work at a blockbuster video store and now she's front and centre of the sequel to literally one of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters, Crazy Rich Asians. She's had some massive sliding door moments discovering where she belonged. We talk about street smarts versus book smarts and how a woman who now has yum chart with Gwyneth Peltro was overlooked in male-dominated film school. How she kept her dream alive and how she has come to be a Chinese-Australian screenwriter and director in the world's most influential circles, we are about to find out. And you are going to find her story, we hope, so moving and absolutely surprising. Amy Wang, welcome to our little podcast. We are so excited to have you all the way from LA. So what's the time there? It is 6.11pm. Good evening to you and good morning to us. (laughs) Yeah, good evening. So we are just so excited to know your whole story. I mean, we only have an hour, but we just really want to know how on earth, there's so much that we want to know, but how on earth does a suburban Aussie girl end up in Hollywood and writing what was, you know, the first kind of full Asian cast movie since the Joy Luck Club, writing the sequel to that. Like, how did, where did it start? Let's start at the beginning. Okay. The beginning, beginning, like my birth. The beginning, (laughs) beginning. Yeah. Why not? Why not? (laughs) Well, you know, because this is A to B. So the journey from A to B is kind of your being now, right? Oh, my goodness. So I was born in China in a city called Hangzhou. And I didn't actually meet my dad until I immigrated to Australia when I was seven. Wow. So my dad, when I was born, moved over to Sydney first. So it was just me and my mom for a long time. And uh, I think it was too expensive for my dad to call. So he would sometimes send letters. And then, yeah, when I was seven, we immigrated, my mother and I, to Sydney. I didn't know a word of English. I knew, I remember knowing ABC, that was it. And I also remember my first day in primary school, kindergarten. I went to Crown Street Public School and the teacher came up to me with like a sheet of animal stickers. 
and I don't know what she was saying to me. And so I thought she was telling me, um, pick what your zodiac sign is, your Chinese zodiac sign. So I picked, <laughs> so I picked the snake to, to put on my backpack. And then I looked around and all the other kids had um, pictures of, you know, cute bunnies and cats and dogs. And she was asking, what was your favorite animal? And I picked <laughs> the snake. And so after that, I was bullied for having the snake. You know, I was like the snake girl. And oh. yeah. <laughs> also, my name was Mimi when I first immigrated over. Which, which is amazing. You and I worked that out, yeah. didn't we? That we had the same name. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I was teased a lot for being named Mimi. So I, I, um, Went to a couple of different primary schools uh, because my parents moved around a lot when we first got to Sydney. And then I eventually skipped to high school. I went to Hornsby Girls, which was very far from where I lived, but um, it was a good school. And I discovered I really liked acting, (laughs) which was really sad because I was really bad at it and and uh um, you know I I would go to classes and just realize like how tough it was and how much concentration you'd need so I was around like 13 at the time then you know was like I guess acting's not for me so what else is out there and really kind of got into movies can I get, just go back to your name for a minute? Sorry to interrupt you, Amy, but you were Mimi. That was your name. Yes, you were teased. Yeah. I'm presuming that it was the same way that I was teased at school. Mimi, you, you, yeah. you, you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stupid stuff. But you changed your name at some stage. So when did that happen? Yes, I changed my name uh, going into high school. Really? So primary school year six. Yeah. So that was the last year. And and I, to this day, I cannot tell you why I decided on Amy. I think I was like in my room. So yeah. as a, like a 12 year old, you had actually made that decision, which is a pretty adult decision to leave a name behind. And do you know what? I na- I had to change my name when I was, um, I guess, 23, 24, because Damn. my original name is Joe Bailey and there was already another one in the industry. So I had to choose a right. new name. And I found that really hard. And I was an adult. How does a 12 year old, you know, there's yeah. a lot around your losing a part of your identity when you change your name. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think at the time I had been teased a lot. I had a weird uh, final year in primary school. It was a, I don't know if you want to hear it, but it's, it was a weird, because um, I, I had moved schools quite a bit and I moved schools at the beginning of year six. And I made friends with this one girl and she kind of isolated me from the rest of the, the grade and I only found that out afterwards. And it was just this weird kind of situation. I think I was just very ready to shed that part of my life, you know, from the bullying to not really feeling like I had a lot of friends and just feeling like I didn't really belong. I think that all kind of contributed to me being totally okay to become 80. Yeah, because I'm sure, Joe, for you as a 20-something-year-old, there were definitely parts of yourself that you loved and you would have wanted to maintain, right? Well, I liken it to moving countries, you know, where you don't yet belong to the new country, but you're sort of not from the old country anymore. You're sort of in this liminal no man's land or no woman's land, shall we say. I found myself going, well, I don't, I suppose I'm not Joe Bailey anymore, but I don't feel like Joe Stanley. And I still now kind of go, who actually am I? I don't know. Yeah. But you shedding a part of yourself and then going, I start fresh at a new school with a new name. Did it feel like you were stepping into your power to a degree? I think so, definitely, yeah. I mean, I was so ready to make friends and have this new start, you know, Um, having only had that one friend who was like kind of creepy uh, towards the end. Mm. Does that inform your writing now? (laughs) Do you get some of that? Yeah. I mean, I, it's yeah, it, it's funny because um, 
we, we'll get to that soon where, um, you know, the, the things I actually enjoy writing and, and the films I make are actually very dark and not funny and not romantic at all. Um, and so Crazy Rich Asians was kind of, is still this kind of outlier um, that's great and, you know, amazing to be a part of, but definitely not what I enjoy writing. So when they approached you for Crazy Rich Asians 2, did you say, hang on, do you know that I write dark yeah. <laughs> scripts? I'm not a romantic writer. Do you have to write yes, Amy Wayne? Yes, that was definitely, that definitely was brought up. But I, so what what landed me that was um, I'd written a spec script about Wendy Dane Murdoch, um, who I'm obsessed with and who I think is, you know, such a fascinating character and, and a woman and uh, that, script was kind of like a like a wolf of wall street slash you know like a, a raging bull kind of story you know and and about the rise and fall of this woman and the crazy rich agents two producers read that and i think they saw a lot not similarities to do with the tone but i think regarding like the world and the characters and the family relationships, I think they saw a lot of that in that script that they thought could translate well into the movie. So yeah, they gave me a shot. And at the time, I mean, to get the job, I had to pitch so many times uh, to so many different people. And it was between me and another Asian male writer. So it was between the two of us. And uh, I'm sure he also pitched many, many times and, you know, ended up going to me. So it's a long process. Well, well, that in itself is extraordinary because you are having to really be, you know, present yourself with such confidence and certainty, even at times where you might be quaking in your boots, right? And yes. you go back to your origin story in primary school where you've been, you know, bullied and teased, then having to really define yourself going into high school at such a young age, that has to be formative to you now being able to Sit in a room and hold space. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll give credit, so much credit to my parents in that they always valued, I guess, street smarts more than book smarts. And they always, you know, told me to be who I was and to always, uh, even if, you know, the best I could do was 70% in a math test. If that's my best, then that's good enough. Um, which I feel like is quite rare for Asian parents, the Chinese parents. So uh, I'm very grateful for that. Yes. Can I say you must be a doctor? You must be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and both my parents back in China were art professors. So um, my dad taught ceramics and my mother taught uh, fashion design. Amazing. So I think that really helped. Yeah, that really helped with them being supportive of what I eventually chose to do. But uh, I always, I, I would also say like, you know, my my mom tells me, I don't remember this, but uh, even from a young age, I really liked public speaking and I really liked performing in front of people <laughs> as a child. So I think those qualities are very important in the writing world, which is kind of strange because when you imagine a writer, you imagine them in like a small room and then like a nerdy you know, dude with like glasses and then just typing. <laughs> Whereas I would say, you know, 50% of this job is pitching and, you know, uh, being somebody who people like to be in a room or space with, especially when you're writing a television show. And it's like, yeah, just being like a social human. So if you had that tendency to enjoy the spotlight and to, you know, take to the stage from a young age and you were encouraged by your parents, was there any moment throughout your, I guess, your high school or whatever you went on to straight after high school, was there a moment or a person that was pivotal in you actually taking that next step into film? Because it's one thing enjoying the limelight and enjoying performing, but it's another thing actually doing something with it, particularly when society and families tend to encourage us into more traditional jobs. Totally, totally. 
I mean, I would say, so I um, got a job. I was desperate to work at a uh, video store. So um, <laughs> so did I. It was like the coolest job in yeah, the 90s. That is the best job the you coolest. could ever get. Yeah, totally, totally. So I remember like, you know, every Christmas, you know, like during the Christmas break, like uh, during high school, I would like have my resume and I would like take it to Video Easy and like Blockbuster and like, you know, try and get a job and it didn't happen for a long time. But uh, late in my teens, I want to say when I was like 17, maybe like 16, 17, I got a job at Blockbuster in Ashfield and uh, that really changed my life. So having a job there, you know, getting access to all types of movies and also the guys I worked with, a lot of them were kind of older-ish, like, you know, older in terms of like they're in their 20s guys who were really into like a lot of dark stuff like David Cronenberg and David Fincher and and you know all sorts of those types of movies and I you know would listen to the recommendations and watch those movies and uh, really kind of got into it and um, I will say I think this is a very film school kind of example but for me I think Fight Club was the quintessential movie when I watched it I was like man like the twists I won't spoil it but the you know the movie being about something about consumerism that really spoke to me and just the the characters is everything about it I was like man like if I could make an audience or a person feel the way that I feel having just watched that movie because I was like, oh my God, I still remember when I watched it, I like ran downstairs, my parents were like, oh my God, like <laughs> Fight Club, it's like a masterpiece. And yeah. <laughs> that is one of my all-time favourite films too, Amy, and I just recently watched it again with my husband because we watched it, um, I'm a lot older than you, right? So we were uh, 28-ish, right? And we were the same, just going, what is that? Yeah. What, how do you absorb <laughs> even how this film has unfolded? And so we watched it again recently, hoping that it was still that, and it is. Oh, my it God. Is, That's right? amazing. That's so good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> It really is. Apart from the fact that Brad Pitt is, Brad Pitt is like, <laughs> I mean, God, he is in his prime there. And I yeah. love this because I think we all have movies that have um, – you know, when you're on your path to who you are now, it is sometimes those random, like a movie that can change your life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, I will say also, um, that kind of really, you know, just kicked my butt into gear. Like, this is what I want to do. My dad, he got me this like little camcorder for me to start, you know, making things in high school. Oh my God, I still have uh, nightmares about the the things I made my friends do. Like I did this alien video. <laughs> like I made them just pretend to be aliens. It's just really horrible stuff. But you know, it was it it was exciting and fun at the time. And I, you know, <laughs> you got to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah, that's like the Steven Spielberg trajectory. Tomato sauce in the kitchen, and yeah, you know, it's yeah. Just... <laughs> You do got to start somewhere. It's oh amazing. Oh, my God, yeah. It was so what then, what then was that sliding yeah. door moment? Of, like you you had the dream, like you clearly had the dream and the drive and I can just, I get goosebumps just listening to you and listening to your amazing story. But then something has to, you know, lots of people have dreams, lots of people have passions. But what was that moment? What was that sliding door? What was that big break that actually led you into the industry? Yeah. Yeah. So I graduate high school. I do my undergrad at UTS in uh, media production, which is like a filmish kind of undergrad degree. And I made more short films there, but I definitely was not the most talented in my school, my year. I was definitely not the teacher's favorite. And that's something that I kind of still to this day want to kind of spread to people because even after I graduated that school and I eventually got into the American Film Institute in LA for directing, I was not the favorite there either. And it's it's frustrating because, you know, my uh, 
my thesis film that I made there ended up being the film that was the most successful in festivals and, you know, obviously helped boost my career at that time. But uh, I think, you know, when you think about a director, even now, it's always mostly men and it was no different. And if I, you know, uh, the teachers definitely favored, there were three men in particular who the teachers loved and thought they were going to be the next big thing and gave them anything they wanted and, uh, you know, didn't really pay much attention to me. And I remember uh, in second year at AFI, I had a conversation with my professor who had us for two years by that point. And our directing class is tiny. There's like maybe 20 directors um, in our year. And uh, he had a 10-minute conversation with me And then that night he emailed another Asian girl about my conversation with him. (gasps) Yeah. And that, and on top of that, I'm Australian and most of my class are American. So it it was just this, yeah. And and I I look nothing like her. Let me make that clear. (laughs) So, And it's a tiny class of 20 people you know, presumably quite yes. a difficult process yeah. to get through yeah. to get into that room in the first place at that table. Yeah. So that is just insult upon insult. And I was going to ask you about that because you talk about the inequity between men and women in the industry, as with every industry, but it's, you know, kind of magnified, I think, in your industry. What about being Chinese in the room and being Asian or being of colour? Yeah. Like how did that to play out both from your high school years, even yeah. growing up in Australia as an yeah. Asian, and who was backing you to jump through all of these hoops? Because you're saying that you you weren't the best, you weren't the favourite, but you still kept pushing through. So mm. was there someone backing you or were you just backing yourself? Did you just have that confidence? Yeah, God, really great questions. Because I haven't actually thought about what did keep me going, you know. I think... I mean, I always say this industry is so hard and unless within yourself there is just that desperation to express yourself no matter what. And I think it's important to have a great team behind you and loving parents and great friends and siblings. But at the end of the day, it's really just you. It's you who experiences the heartbreaks, the success. Um, it's you who has to keep yourself in check and push yourself, you know, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day when nobody else is, is, you know, scolding you and making you do something, especially with this industry. So I would say, I think, I would say, yeah, I, I think my, my drive does come from within and I have thought about this as well. I believe another reason why, where my drive comes from is because both my parents since they've been in Australia, they don't, they never really learned to speak English very well. And, uh, you know, my dad to this day, he works at a, uh, a factory that makes like signages for, for companies. Um, and he operates machinery. Whereas back in China, he used to, you know, teach ceramics or was an artist. And so kind of, seeing their trajectory and knowing how creative they are, but seeing them kind of give up on their dreams and and not put in the hard work kind of, I think, made me go, as sad as it sounds, I don't want to end up like them, you know, and, and seeing the frustrations they've had financially and psychologically, I think, have kind of, yeah, made me go, okay, this is a life I don't want. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you think if you weren't Amy Wang, currently very successful screenwriter, director, doing the thing that was your dream, but this creative drive would still be in you. Would you have found another way? You know, you just don't stop. If this, you are, are aware that this is your purpose on this planet is to be creative and to tell stories. Yeah. I don't think I would be doing something else. I think I would still be pushing as much as I can. And even now, I mean, I'm, I feel like, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like it doesn't matter how successful you are in the industry. And again, like, I don't think I'm successful, which is crazy, but there's such a huge part of me that is always prepared for the entire industry to blacklist me and I'm going to have to, you know, start over and, and start writing my own things and and grinding and trying to convince everyone that I'm still a good writer and, and, you know, you can still trust in me. But that, that drive, I don't think will ever go away. And I don't think I would ever do anything else. It's this or nothing. So what does it do to your heart and soul seeing and witnessing and being part of the global embracing of Asian film and writing now? I mean, this is so current. It's so real, you must just be able to cut it with a knife in Hollywood. I mean, the Oscars, you were in tears, I would imagine. We were messaging. It was, um, you know, it was big. Yeah, 100%. And going back to your previous question was to do with my experience as a, as a Chinese Australian person, woman growing up there. I, it's kind of sad to say, but I think Part of the reason why I left Australia was because I felt like I couldn't fully be myself and I felt like I couldn't truly tell the stories I wanted to tell because Australian film and television, I mean, I don't quite know where it is at now, but definitely when I was there, you know, in the 2010s and it felt like you had to tell either quintessential Australian white stories that were about like, you know, like drugged out suburbia (laughs) or like, or, you know, something very culturally relevant, which I don't think I would have been able to tell like a Aboriginal story or, you know, something that needed that specific voice. I know things have changed a bit now, but back then I didn't think there would be stories uh, because I wanted to tell like a cool, like, thriller you know like horror movie or like I don't know like a a drama and with like a cool science fiction twist or whatever you know and and I know for example Saw which was done by James Wan and an Aussie you know an Asian Aussie he left and went to America you know Saw was one of the biggest horror movies in the entire world you know back then and you know and but you wouldn't call an Australian film you know Saw and you know I I actually I'm actually uh, mates with uh, Lee Winnell, who made that film with James, and I know that they tried very hard to make it in Australia. And yeah. just no one was interested. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So I think part of the reason why I left was because, yeah, I just didn't feel like there was space for me in Australia. I wasn't one of the Edgerton brothers, <laughs> you know, um, and making those types of movies. <laughs> so I, I left and... I feel like maybe it's just a space, but being in LA and being in America, I think I haven't felt more Australian than I've ever felt. And the types of stories uh, I feel are very personal to me and accepted, yeah, which is crazy. Well, I think there's extraordinary courage too, though, in carving your own path, right? And this is about the journey from A to B and you have, you know, had the courage to go, well, my Australia is not going to be it for me. I have to go and literally geographically create a path. Was it hard moving there? I'd say yes and no. I would say it was 
probably harder for my now husband um, because he, so right before we left, I was working at Channel 7. He was working at Foxtel. We've been dating for about four years and I told him, so, you know, I'm, I'm applying to film school and if I get in, I'm going to move. And he was like, okay, well, I guess I'm moving with you, uh, which is very sweet. <laughs> so, so it was hard for him because I had school and I was gone, you know, 14, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, making my films and, you know, being a film student. Uh, whereas he had to find a job, you know, and he didn't know a single person. And it was incredibly lonely being by himself, not having work and being in a new country. And I think that period of time, like the first probably six months to a year was really hard for him. Hard for me in different ways, but, uh, you know, I was making friends. I was making films together with uh, like-minded people. So I would say it was harder for him. So the US has been so instrumental in your journey and has allowed you to actually step into your power and to be who you truly are. Do you still, I mean, born in, you were born in China, didn't come to Australia until you were seven years old. Do you still call Australia home or a home of sorts? Or do you feel like you're at home now? Or do you feel like just a citizen of the world and the world is your home? Oh, that's a good question too. Oh, man. Because when I when I go back to Sydney, things have changed a lot. But at the same time, it only takes me a couple of days to really, you know, recenter myself and my family's still there. All of my really close friends are still there. So it does feel like home to some degree. I think I'll always be Australian. I would never call myself American. That just feels really far-fetched. No offense to Americans. Uh, and well, we've made that clear now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but home, probably LA. I would probably say LA feels like home now, which is, yeah, kind of sad. But joyful, I guess. <laughs> Why sad? I think that's awesome. If you found a place where you feel belonging, like belonging is so key to our sense of safety, right? So I think that's beautiful that you found a home there in LA. So, Amy, I, I read that you said uh, it was an interview where you were, was, I think, advice to other younger filmmakers and you mentioned that life experience is so important to your work, you know, that you bring lived experience to everything you do. So taking it away from, taking this conversation away from the industry and your actual job, let's say, right, what kinds of life experience have you had that really contributes to you being here now? Because we've heard that you were bullied. We've heard that, you know, you changed schools. Like there's a real sort of tale of resilience in you. Is there a life experience, a life moment, a story of one particular moment that contributes to you being here now? Gosh, I don't know if there's one moment, but again, great question. I, I say the life experience is important because, you know, what it is to be in the film industry and what sets you apart is your voice. And and I define your voice as your lived experiences and what makes you unique, how you view the world. Um, what you think of the world, you know, I think filmmaking in particular is very, you have to have a stance, right? So um, I don't want people to think that it's like you need to, you know, do something crazy and like go to Antarctica and live there for 10 years. You know, I think it's about knowing what you've lived and and remembering kind of working through kind of in a, you know, a, a therapeutic kind of way what has happened in your life to lead you to where you are now. And for me, I used to think my life was so boring. <laughs> and, you know, I grew up in suburban Sydney and and had two parents, was an early child and grew up watching movies. That was kind of my story. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, the things with my parents and their inability to communicate in English and from a really young age, I had to be their uh, translator, you know, and to this day, like my mother will text me and say, can you write up this email for me that I need to send to the RTA or the NRMA, you know, or, or like we have a leak in our tap. Can you call up this plumber for us? So, you know, that still happens. And I think that 
experience has been such a huge influence on uh, my work because what I like to do is I like to write morally ambiguous characters and I like stories about people who society likes to see or judge in a particular way and show you a different side. Now, we have this funny, quirky thing that we do on our podcast where we tell a little story and I've, I've a, a story about an A to B in history or in storytelling, uh, an A to B about something that's been invented or how something came about. So I have researched one with you in mind, Amy. And this is, Amy, we call th- we call this surprise and delight because we bring it to the other person. It's a total, well, I mean, I call it that because I, we, we like to surprise each other. I don't know what she's bringing here, right? It's like a little gift. Yes, an origin story for something well known that you, Amy Wang, may or may not already know. We will see. But just picture this. Imagine you're in Tokyo around 1603 to 1868, which is a pretty broad, (laughs) non-precise time, but this is what my research threw up. And there's this ruler in no one particular region called Lee Naotaka. And Naotaka is wandering around and he's looking up at the sky with his bow and arrow and he's hunting falcons. Now, there happens to be a cat watching Nautaka with great curiosity. Now, this cat was auspiciously born at a local temple. So Nautaka's hunting away and suddenly a storm begins to brew. Now, this cat, for those of us who love cats, and I know Amy does. I love cats. I love cats. Okay, we all love cats. Oh, you love cats. All right, I should know that. So this is a very cute cat and... Just as the storm's brewing and Nataka is hunting, he looks over at this very cute cat and the cat raises its paw and beckons Nataka over. Ah! So Nataka puts down his weapon, steps towards the cat to give the kitty cat a little pet and bam, lightning strikes exactly where Nataka was standing just a moment ago, the cat has saved his life. Now, Taka proclaims the cat a hero, makes the cat the patron of the temple in the area and a shrine to the feline who has saved his skin. Today, the waving, beckoning cat can be seen in its thousands at the same temple and in its thousands across the world in Chinese stores and supermarkets. That is the, the Chinese best. waving yeah. cat welcomes you into Asian That's shops awesome. everywhere, but it's actually not Chinese, it's Japanese, according to this research. Oh, Mimi, that is the best one we've had so That's far because cool. they are everywhere. And let me tell you, not being Chinese, <laughs> but growing up where all the share households in inner city Melbourne, for some reason, everyone had one of those cats. I actually just got rid of one that my husband has held on to since I met him when he was 25. Oh, my oh God, my I love God. it. That's <laughs> awesome. The lucky cat. So this is the lucky cat that, and apparently it's not waving, it's beckoning. So that's right. a beckoning symbol wow. in Chinese, and like, in Chinese and Japanese. It's saying, come over, bring me money and good luck. Right. Whereas we call it the waving cat. Anyway, I thought right. that was a, a great story. That's really story. cool. That's really cool. Yeah. I I knew it was Japanese, but I did not know of the story at all. That that's what happened. Wow. And it is so fascinating, right, how um, something that was Japanese kind of, you know, moved its way into China. Yeah, and different, and it's interesting as well, origin stories, how different people, different cultures, religions take credit for mm. certain things. And I remember remember at the Chinese um, Beijing Olympics, how the Chinese were very clear on who invented pasta, who invented writing, who invented paper. And so made sure funny. But it was unequivocal. <laughs> <laughs> it leads me to ask you the question, though, Amy, now that you have moved countries, right, did you take anything with you? I don't know if you took a beckoning cat, but did you take something that was perhaps like a part of your identity that you just couldn't oh, leave behind? Gosh, I will say I think 
another reason why I've been pretty good with moving around so much and in a way I don't really miss a lot of people is because um, back in China, because my dad was in Australia and my mother was working, she actually put me through a lot of boarding schools as like a three-year-old, four-year-old. So um, I would be at those boarding schools oh, for like... That. You were just a baby. Yeah. I, I do actually still remember this memory of my mother picking me up and I'd been at the boarding school for, I don't know, six months, eight months, hadn't seen her. And uh, she was picking me up and I remembered seeing this image of this lady with like really horrible teeth. And I was like, who is this woman with this horrible set of teeth who is, you know, trying to pick me up? And she was like, I'm your mother. And I had no recollection of, you know, who she was. Uh, she's told me a story is kind of sad about how um, when she first came into boarding school, she gave me this doll and she was like, whenever you miss me, you know, you hug this doll, this doll is me. And uh, when I went, you know, into the boarding school, apparently um, the teachers told my mother afterwards that I would not let go of this doll ever. Like I would sleep with it, I would shower with it. And uh, after a couple of months, my mother came to pick me up. She said I took out this dirty, like ragged doll that, you know, I kept with me for all those months. I refused to let them take it or wash it. And, uh, and I gave it to my mom and it just broke her heart, you know, seeing that. It's, it's, yeah, it's a sad story. I, I still get emotional talking about it, you know. Oh, broken our heart. Yeah. <laughs> How old were you? About three, three to four. Yeah. So quite, yeah, definitely. I think during those early years, you know, not having parents and, and having that kind of stability. Um, I think, I mean, this is how I reason with it. The reason why I don't miss people as much, or I'm not as, I guess, sentimental with things is is because um, I moved around so much and in those early years I didn't really, you know, have a lot. I protected myself, I guess, by not missing my parents. What would you say to the little three-year-old Amy who's clinging on to her little doll and in that, I know that you call it a boarding school, but it sounds like an orphanage to me in a way because you were, you know, there without parents. Yeah, I mean... I would say, you know, you're going to find a great way to talk about that pain and to express yourself, <laughs> you know, which I think is a huge reason. I mean, it's the biggest reason why I can't stop creating and I can't stop writing. And I guess, you know, things change and things get better and things also get worse, you know, in different ways. But, you know, keep going and, and never stop loving you know your family and and stop putting yourself out there even if you know there is pain and and you are rejected to never stop doing that which i feel like i haven't stopped so that's yeah <laughs> and one other question the fact that you had dreamed of this career when you were so young and now you're here right and it's a question that often people are asked, but what would you say to your teen self who had suddenly discovered Fight Club and discovered that filmmaking was, you know, your dream? What would you say to that teen self now that you've lived that journey and you're in your B? Yeah, I would say relax <laughs> because I think <laughs> when you're early on, you know, in your career and especially when you're a teenager, I think I was worrying about all sorts of things and uh, scared that this wasn't going to happen or that wasn't going to happen. Just a lot of worry, I think. And even now it's still there. So I'm sure, you know, if there is a A to B to C when I'm in my C uh, in 10 years, I'm going to look back and be like, you need to chill, be Amy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it extraordinary, Mimi, how those formative years, which you – just live through, don't ever think about, but then as an adult, it just creates 
all of your coping mechanisms it creates all of your relationships with the external world and you know and I'm sure it really informed your creativity as well Amy because when you are a solo child you are creative because it's your only company absolutely absolutely yeah and it is wild to think like you know my husband and son is is white and he grew up in suburb of Sydney um, in Dremoyne and you know uh, when I was in China up until when I was seven I I don't know showered maybe once a week uh, because I didn't have access to showers and, and bathrooms the way he did uh, like my my grandmother you know would would wash me in like a little a little pot bowl thing there wasn't free running water there wasn't even a like a yeah a shower um, in a house and it's just yeah it's really it's it's kind of trippy to think to go from that to Sydney you know and then now here to LA where you know my boss at Netflix um my showrunner is married to Gwyneth Paltrow you know <laughs> like you know and, and we had we had young and you were bathing in a little bucket when you were a baby yeah <laughs> Now we had Yum Cha with Gwyneth Paltrow in him. Like it's so wild and bizarre, <laughs> you know, and and to see like the wealth and the glamour and everything, like going to these parties and like during Oscar season, going to these Oscar parties, you know, seeing like all of these famous people and incredibly wealthy people. It's really it's really bizarre to <laughs> to, to Kind of, you know, see all these worlds from China to Australia to LA. And fascinating, yeah. It is amazing. And I think you have really painted for us a just a beautiful picture of where you have come from and who you are, because it doesn't matter where we go in life, geographically or metaphorically, career-wise or otherwise, we always take with us our past and our past experiences, whether we recognize that or not. And so your past experience is so rich and so interesting to think that there was a time in your life where you thought it was boring is so extraordinary. But I really relate to that too, because I thought that my upbringing was boring too, until, until I wrote a book yeah. and realized maybe that boring. But <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> this is sort of the part in our discussion where we really like to just ask a couple of um, questions for just some succinct answers, whatever springs to mind. And this is about really what, Amy Wang, is your be? What, it I- what is it for you to be in your being now in life and what you're experiencing? God, I mean, what is it to be Amy Wang, to be me? I think being um truthful both to yourself and and in your work i think is something i i am and and strive to be right now with the writer strike uh i feel very passionate about you know my position as a writer and and the importance of being a writer and and uh being somebody who tell stories. Is there something that you do that connects you to yourself? Is, you know, some activity that you do, is it the writing when you get into flow? Is it walking? Is it doing yoga? Is it singing? Is there something that you do that really helps you connect to the source of who you are? Definitely writing is a huge one. The movie that I am directing, it's going to be my first movie that I'm I'm going to be directing that I wrote that is all about my uh, teenage years kind of growing up in Sydney, except it's set in America. So, uh, but uh, dealing with this, the same themes and the same kind of pains and painful memories that I kind of grew up with. So that's been kind of very cathartic to write that and to, you know, talk about it and to think about it. So that's been definitely something that connects me to to who I am. I would also say, I don't know, talking to my husband, you know, talking to my friends, I think is a really huge thing because I'm very neurotic. 
and I can have lots of ups and lots of downs in a day. I think what really grounds me and reminds me of my self-worth and what I'm capable of is my husband a lot of the time and my family and, you know, my friends. So I think that also helps me be me. Oh, Amy, I just want to give you a hug. I want to give that little girl, Amy, a hug, the teenage girl, Amy, a hug, all of the machinations and versions of you. We are so grateful that you have joined us today. Thank you, guys. This was really lovely. Oh, look, I can't wait to see your C. That's going to be amazing. Thank you for listening. We love you joining us for our A to B chats. Yes, we do. Please see our show notes for our acknowledgement of country and all the people who help us put this podcast together, as well as interesting links to our guests' work and other references we've mentioned. Such as your frequently unverified quotes. Yes, I may (laughs) still need to check a few of those. Thank you. We're Jo. And Mimi from A to B. Rate, follow and get in touch on our website. And let us know whose A to B you'd like to find out about. We can't wait for you to hear our next conversation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.